Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left um, Weekly Radio with Jacob and Zane in the studio. Good morning. Uh, probably our first program of the new year, um, and it's also uh, a special note of significance is this um, free CR program today is going to be broadcast to you on Invasion Day. Um, so that probably gets uh, me into... What I want um, the first thing to do before I get into the rest of the program is um, I'd like to acknowledge um, the traditional owners um, that this program is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay my respect to elders past and present and that this always was, always will be, and especially on this day, um, Aboriginal land um, and that sovereignty was never ceded. All right, so um, today is um, Invasion Day, or what normal what people will like to also call Australia Day. Um, but I would like to encourage everyone that there will be Invasion Day rallies happening all around the country. Um, most of our listeners would be in Melbourne, um, so 11 a.m. Um, outside the Parliament House um, will be the Invasion Day rally, um, official or- Invasion Day rally organised by Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. Um, and there's all, there'll also be um, there's also rallies in uh, in Redfern, Lid- Lismore, Brisbane, um, Perth, and Adelaide and Hobart. Um, in uh, I think in 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 Redfern is the Sydney rally, which will be at the corner of Caroline and Lewis Street at 10 a.m. in the block. Um, Lismore will be at the local courthouse, 9 to 11 Zardoch Street, and Brisbane will be at the Parliament House at 10 a.m. And in Perth, it will be at the Forest Chase Murray Street Mall at 1 p.m., and Adelaide, the Semper Four Foreshore, from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. And at Hobart, it's at a uh, street, uh, 198 Elizabeth Street. And there will also some other events that will be also happening on Invasion Day uh, today um, in Melbourne will be there will be the Belgrave Survival Day. Um, I'm not completely sure of where that's located, but if you search Belgrave Survival Day into Google, you'll find out where it is. But it is in Belgrave. Uh, it's um, going to be at the corner of Benson Street and Blair Road mm. at 12 noon. 12 noon, and then from 12 to 1 p.m. or 1 p.m. till 6. Um, as far as I know, the Share the Spirit Festival, um, an Aboriginal festival celebrating culture, will be at the Treasury Gardens from 12, 1 to 6. And usually it's a bit of a tra- tradition that a lot of the Invasion Day rallies usually end up being there. Um, I mean, all I know for sure is we're definitely marching towards Flinders Street and usually when that happens... 
people usually move on along to the Treasury Gardens to check out the Share the Spirit Festival. And um, I think it's um, now, I guess, going on, that's a bit of a roundup of what's happening on Invasion Day. Um, for our program, we do have um, some Indigenous voices lined up towards the end of our program, um, and we'll have... Um, and we'll have at least sort of two interviews um, sort of back-to-back at, towards the end. Um, but we also have a pre-recorded interview um, that we'll be playing early on the show of our Iranian socialist and or activist called Freda, um, Greta Afray. Um, however, um, we'll find... Um, and I just wanted to bring up, um, talk about, you know, a bit about January 26. And it's interesting... The kind of amount of controversy it co- um, it causes amongst the right wing and um, Matthew Guy, um, who's our who's going to be the premier of our opposition uh, of the opposition, is but has basically said that if he gets elected into into the state parliament this year, um, he will sack any council, and that includes the councils that have voted to democratically not to recognise Australia Day. Um, that they will be sacked if they don't participate in January 26th um, celebrations. And there's also this push um, coming from the state Liberals on this whole thing about, well, we need to teach less about Aboriginal issues um, and other humanity issues, um, and then we need, but we need to put the emphasis on national pride. Um, so you can tell that this whole sort of momentum of this campaign, especially the rallies that have been happening around um, on that happen every year on Invasion Day, uh, and also the, the increased pressure as a result of councils just um, choosing not to recognise Australia Day is actually having an impact, um, especially since I think it should be noted that Australia Day celebrations are actually only like a recent invention. In fact, it's only been... Um, it's only been the past several years that they've gained so much prominence in terms yeah, of... Since as a, 1994, as a, I think. Yes, yeah, since 1994, whereas the protests and um, whereas January 26 has always been marked um, as a day of mourning by the Aboriginal community for far longer than that, um, going all the way back um, to the early um, 20th century. Um, and that's... You know, it's quite. I think it's quite deliberate by the government. Um, this sort of brushing up of Australia Day because it's sort of like a way. It's a way of denying our true genocidal history, especially since the Australian government continues to participate in the dispossession and colonisation of Aboriginal communities. Um, but then there's also the the fact that you know it's it's a it's kind of convenient kind of way to kind of brush up kind of nationalism. I mean, in fact. Anzac Day is almost in the same category, um, mm. and all these, all yeah, these. I find the vibe of Anzac Day and January twenty six pretty similar. There's a lot of drunk people wandering around being aggro and waving the Union Jack around, mm. and so that that's um and and um it's interesting, and, but in. But I think this this rally to, um, today will have a bit of a will have massive impact. In fact, it's been kind of promoted in the media that there'll be twenty thousand tens of thousands of people marching on the street. Although they did, I mean, listening on the radio this morning, they did try to conservatise the message a bit in a sense that they're saying that oh yes, tens of thousands of people are gathering to change the date, which I think is not a, comp- a, a true reflection of 
why people are marching. Mm. In fact, there's a lot more to it than that. Especially since the Aboriginal community um, in a lot of the rallies are basically calling for the date to be abolished um, and they're not necessarily calling for a change in the date. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about the Liberals calling to change the syllabus and teach less about Aboriginal people and more about national pride. Um, there's this really cool film that's screening at um, ACME at Fed Square from starting today and going till February 6th. It's called We Don't Need a Map by um, Warwick Thornton. And Warwick Thornton's just got a new film out called The Sweet Country, which has apparently got really good reviews. But this film, We Don't Need a Map... It's it's a fascinating and really interesting film. It looks at the Southern Cross and the significance of that in a lot of Aboriginal, like different Aboriginal cultures. Uh, and he also makes the point: what is this nationalism that Australians get into? You ask your typical Southern Cross tattooed person, "All right, what makes Australia so special?" Are uh, barbecues and having a beer and some of the other he interviews Briggs from AB Original in the film and he's like well <laughs> they have barbecues in all around the world like it's not actually something particularly special something that is unique to this continent is that 60 80 100,000 years of aboriginal history if we were going to get proud about something that is unique to Australia probably aboriginal culture would be a one of the things that does actually set this corner of the world apart from other parts of the world, mm. and yet here's the the liberals. They're such shallow-minded morons, and they're, they're saying, oh, well, we need to teach less about Aboriginal people and, and more about national pride. Mm. I just the, the type of national pride that they're yeah. talking about is so shallow and hollow and meaningless. Yeah. Well, I think it's um, these kind of brushing up in nationalism is always done for a kind of a sole purpose of like, you know, it's a way of kind of distracting people from broader kind of economic issues um, as they're implementing so unpopular economic policies. They can use this sort of nationalism to sort of and brush it up. Hmm. Um, and But I also, I also think it it's quite deliberate in a sense. Um, it's no surprise that they're talking about removing Aboriginal studies from the curriculum or whatever they, the specifics of what they're proposing because the reality is the Liberal Party ha- um, have implemented all these harsh policies uh, that um, disproportionately affect Aboriginal people from the Northern Territory intervention, which the Labor Party also supported, um, from the forced closure of remote communities um, and from also the fact that the implementation of things like the basics cards or welfare quarantine of Aboriginal people in remote communities, all these racist policies um, that they implement. Um, And of course, it's no surprise that they don't want any, they don't want to have any discussion about the true history of Australia and Mm. their compliance in the genocide and colonialization of Aboriginal people. Mm. And I I was, uh, I, I got my grandmother this book, uh, Dark Emu, by Aboriginal author Bruce Pascoe. It's a really fascinating book, and I'd highly recommend it. I didn't get to read the whole thing, but I read a few of the chapters. And it's looking at Aboriginal food production, fish farming, uh, the the highly organised way in which there would be, um, you know, a couple of different tribes would come together and you'd have, you know, 3,000 people 
hunting um, a flock of kangaroos across a 30-kilometre um, kind of front and herding them down to this one sort of area where they would be um, kind of speared. Uh, fascinating book. And part of what Bruce Pascoe inevitably has to talk about in this book is, of course, the colonisation of Australia and how the livestock came and ate all of the Aboriginal food which had been carefully cultivated all mm. across the continent. And, yeah, this this the type of racist policies that we have today, they, they are very much part of this, their continuation of that process of, of colonisation which goes right back to when the first sort of settlers came and pushed the Aboriginal people off the land and really violently did so. And I've read um, Blood on the Wattle uh, mm. by Bruce Elder. After I read a few chapters of that, my grandmother said, oh, well, if you're interested, you know, here's, check this book out. And that's a really sad book about mm. massacres, but it details it. And for, for conservative politicians and columnists like Andrew Bolt to come out and say that there weren't massacres in Australia and there was no... There was no genocide. There was no dispossession. It's just how do you even engage with that? It's just so blatantly obvious. Mm. There is so much factual evidence that there was a, vi- a violent dispossession of, of Aboriginal people, mm. and and massacres as recently as mm. you know the nineteen twenties. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Just um quick antidote before um. <laughs> Before I, we play our first interview, um, which is a pre-recording, um, I was handing out um, leaflets for the Invasion Day um, rally um, over at Flinders Street yesterday. Um, and funny enough, I, I started handing I handed over this um, some, a group of children and her father and their father um, came um, walked past our store and some of the children started taking the leaflets and then the father said, "Don't take those leaflets." We don't support that point of view. <laughs> and I and I said to I said to the father, you know, your children can sink for themselves. I mean, they'll eventually sink for themselves. What about what they actually think of what were what were what were distributing? <laughs> mm. And I, I was at Bunnings picking up some stuff for my work yesterday, and here was these little toddlers, three and four years old, and their parent has got them some Australian flags, little Australian flags to wave around. And it's just, yeah, it's it's interesting to think how early people are indoctrinated into that nationalism and flag waving. Mm. Okay, so I'll just go play our first interview, although just a forewarning, we might have to cut it short at the 30-minute mark, we'll see, because it is quite a long interview, but depending on how we go. Um, but it is an uh, interview by our Iranian socialist um, talking about the revolts that are happening in Iran right now. Um, so it should be provide for an interesting 35 minutes, 30 minutes of listening. <laughs> Welcome to 3CR, Frida. It's a great pleasure to have you uh, on our radio. And we're going to talk about what's happening in uh, Iran at the moment. And Mary and I have this pleasure of talking to you. Um, Okay, so the first question is, analysts are saying that these protests are about the economic pressures that Iranians are under. (laughs) 
And then others are saying that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps started them to consolidate their power during a time of infighting within the regime. Can you firstly explain who the Islamic Revolutionary uh, Guard Corps are? And then secondly, tell us what you think did spark these protests? If you don't mind, I would like to answer in the reverse order. Okay. Can you hear me well? Very well. Okay, very good. Um, On December 28th of 2017, over 500 people protested in the holy city of Mashhad to oppose the rise in prices of basic goods and the increasing poverty. There are rumors that these protests were organized to target President Hassan Rouhani by factions supporting the former president, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who is now out of favor, or the former presidential candidate, Ibrahim Raisi. Whether that's true or not, the fact is that the protesters in Mashhad went far beyond what any faction within the government would have wanted. They chanted death to Rouhani, death to the dictator Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, Neither Gaza nor Lebanon, I sacrifice my life for Iran. Leave Syria alone and think about us. The causes of the uprising are not only economic ones like poverty and unemployment, they're also political and social. So I'd like to say a bit more about that and then return to your question about the IRGC. Mm-hmm. About 40% of the population lives under the relative poverty line. Around 90% of Iran's workers are contract workers without any rights and benefits. The minimum wage of 230 per month, which is one-fifth of what is needed to support a family of four, is not even enforced. On top of these basic economic grievances, there is a growing awareness in the population that the Islamic Republic is spending billions of dollars to fund its military interventions in Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon, and to some extent Yemen, by denying basic subsistence to the majority of its own population. So the protesters are angry at the state for its regional imperialism. Furthermore, political repression, lack of freedom of speech, assembly and the press, as well as social discrimination against women and national and religious minorities is intensifying opposition in an ethnically diverse population that's increasingly literate, literate, has an 87% literacy rate, is aware and connected to the world through the internet. Mm. 60% of Iran's university graduates are women. Most university graduates are unemployed. 45 million Iranians out of the population of 82 million have smartphones. So more specifically, The latest protests have been preceded by over a year of almost daily actions and strikes by workers against non-payment of wages, terrible working conditions. There have been demonstrations by impoverished retirees and those who have lost their meager savings in bankrupt banks or uh, financial and credit institutions. Teachers and nurses have staged strikes. Many political prisoners, including Reza Shahabi, a labor leader, have been on hunger strike off and on for several years. The latest protests in Iran, I would say, are similar to the 2011 protests that began in Tunisia, Egypt, and Syria, that began what, what, what was called the Arab Spring. 
they are a response to both economic impoverishment and political and social repression. But they have the added feature of opposing the military interventions of the Iranian government in other countries of the region. So now that allows me to answer your question about the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or uh, IRGC. The IRGC was started in 1979 as a branch of Iran's military and was involved in the eight-year Iran-Iraq war that uh, lasted, started in 1980 and ended in 1988. The IRGC began its economic activities in 1988 at, after the end of the war and with the establishment of what was called the IRGC Cooperative Foundation. This foundation became the uh, became known as the Khatam al Anbiya Construction Headquarters, or um, uh, English speakers know know it as GORB, G H O R B. Uh, in 1990, it became known as um, as the Khatam al Anbiya or GORB uh, Foundation, and established companies active in agriculture, industry, mining, road building, transportation, export of oil and gas. Then, starting in 2004-2005, which was the last year of President Khatami's government, the economic and political role of the IRGC increased considerably. In 2006, based on an order from Ayatollah Khamenei, who was the guardian jurist, 80% of the state sector was transferred to the what's called the parastatal sector in the name of privatization. So it's really, again, part of the state. It's just the part of the state that uh, does not have to enforce any of the regulations and rules that are in the Constitution. So it's privatization name, but it's actually part of the this, in turn, greatly increased the control of the IRGC over the oil and gas, financial, and telecommunications sectors. The IRGC has been the main force in Iran's military interventions in Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon. Under the Ahmadinejad administration, 182 members of the parliament belong to the IRGC. The Rouhani administration has also now challenged the role of the IRGC in preserving the Assad regime in Syria. It has, in fact, supported this role. During the first year of the Rouhani administration, the military and security forces' share of the national budget officially increased by more than 25%. This year, it has officially increased by 21%. And Rouhani and other officials of this administration and leaders of the IRGC have had multiple meetings with Putin and other officials of the Russian government concerning the continuation of Iran's military intervention in Syria. So these realities speak more of a unity between the government and the IRGC and not a conflict. And on, on top of that, I, the IRGC is used as a security force for repressing labor and popular struggles at home. Mm. Um, I just wanted to clarify something. The the Iranian government has two parts to it. One is the elected part and the other is the unelected part. And I noticed the, the armed forces actually come under the control of the unelected institution under the so-called supreme leader. 
Um, what is the relationship between the armed forces and this um, IRGC? Technically, the Iranian military is more responsible for internal issues and the IRGC is more responsible for external issues. Okay. But they work together. Mm. Okay. So I guess you have answered the second question in that um, contribution, like what's the working life for the working class people in, the, uh, in Iran? Um, the, the, oh, I could add more facts to please that do. if you'd like me to, but if there's no time, we'll skip it. No, no, please do. I can edit it if, if, if I have to. That's fine. Sure. Uh, well, to add more facts to it, uh, most young people, life is a struggle. Considering what I said earlier about how the minimum wage is one fifth of the of the real poverty line and it's not even enforced, ninety percent of workers are contact workers, uh, contract workers with no benefits. So life is a struggle. Most young people, even with college degrees, have to live with their parents. They hold odd jobs. If they're lucky, they have various part-time jobs that are a little more permanent. Uh, many families live in one or two rooms only. Uh, meat, chicken, fish is non-existent in diets of a large portion of the population. Uh, a diet that included bread and cheese and some eggs for families that had been deprived of meat for a long time is now reduced mostly to bread. And uh, prior to the protests, uh, the government, in fact, had announced that subsidies on bread would be removed as well. And that, I think, has also, had also something to do with the protests. Because bread is the foundation of the Iranian diet. Without bread, they have nothing. In fact, uh, uh, since 2010, the Iranian government has been massively cutting subsidies on basic goods, which most of the population relied on. Uh, working class families have to borrow money to buy food or they accumulate large debts to the local grocery store, bakery. Um, some workers have committed suicide because they can't pay for their family's basic needs. Prostitution is rampant. Mm -hmm. In fact, the government itself has prostitution homes, which it uses as a source of profit. Many child laborers are also used for sex, and drug addiction is rampant. Now, as far as the middle classes are concerned, life has also become much more difficult for them. The average salary of a teacher is less than 800 a month, which is still far below the real urban poverty line for a family of four. Uh, for a nurse, the average salary is less than 600 a month. Teachers and nurses work very hard. In fact, I think I've probably exaggerated in even the, in the amounts that I gave you. They're lower than what I gave you. Um, teachers and nurses work very hard. Uh, teachers in, in some working class neighborhoods often pay out of their own pockets to pay the local bakery to provide children with bread so that they can attend, attend class and concentrate on their lessons. Uh, and then, of course, when it comes to health care, most costs have to be paid out of the out of pocket. Okay. So do you want to ask the next question? Yeah. So the third question that I was going to ask you was about the uh, the way the regime works. So Rouhani is supposed to represent the reformist wing, while um, Hamenei represents the more hardline faction. Can you explain this a bit more by giving examples of their respective policies and visions for the future of Iran? Truly, with the exception of some very cosmetic issues, 
Both have supported cuts in wages, ending meager labor regulations, cutting subsidies and social services. Both support Iran's military interventions in the region. As far as human rights are concerned, Rouhani's record has been worse than Ahmadinejad's. More people have been imprisoned and executed under his administration. Iran has the highest execution rate in the world after China. Uh, most of those executed have been executed because of drug charges. Uh, the main difference between Rouhani and Khamenei is that Rouhani prefers more Western investment in the Iranian economy. Uh, Raisi, who is the presidential candidate, uh, who was the presidential candidate of the hardliners in the May 2017 election, is more interested in focusing only on building ties with Russia and China and relying on their investments to build the Iranian economy. Rouhani wants theirs, but also Western investment. Mm. Uh, Rouhani has claimed, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Raisi, who's uh, known as the representative of the hardliners, has claimed to be in favor of the downtrodden and against corruption. But the facts show that he has been just as involved in corruption as the other factions. Um, so as I said earlier, Rouhani is presented as an alternative to the hardline Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Um, but he has on many occasions made it clear that he's not fundamentally opposed to the IRGC or Iran's military, military interventions abroad. So again, aside from some cos cosmetic issues, um, the I would say that both Rouhani and uh, the uh, Khamenei um, are united when it comes to the goal of preserving a strong state with a smaller social welfare sector and a much larger military sector. Not much different from most Western nations, including Australia. Um, yes. not a Western yes. nation. <laughs> yeah. The yes. um, the the um, pro-capitalist imperialist uh, march goes on. Okay, let's move on to the next question. But I, I want to include something else with the the next three questions, which is about the left and the progressive forces. Um, <laughs> if, if you could sort of um, differentiate between the demands of uh, previous mobilizations in 2009 with the Green Movement, and then again in 2011 with the um, Arab Spring uh, mobilizations. This current mobilization is fundamentally different from those mobilizations. And with that, I wonder if we, if we could talk about the left forces and the progressive visions and um, you know how they counteract the revolutionary forces, if, if you can do that. Um, first, about the differences, between the two uh, movements, the Green Movement in 2009 and the movement today. Um, the Green Movement was was against the fraudulent presidential election that returned Mahmoud Ahmadinejad to power. Um, and it limited, uh, it was led by the reformist section of the establishment, had a predominantly middle class base, and had hopes for reform, uh, reforming the system, not its overthrow. Today's protests are different. Uh, they directly oppose poverty and systemic corruption. Uh, they're not supporting some leaders within the regime as their possible saviors. And in, in, in the latest movement, we've had the wide participation of the working class, both men and women. Women have had a very strong role in the latest protests. Uh, in some cases, they've been involved in the leadership. Um, 
the so it's not only the urban middle class. It, in fact, it's not it's not so much the, the latest wave has involved not so much the urban middle class, uh, but really the the working class. And the demands have been much more radical, including opposing uh, military intervention in the region uh, and explicitly challenging the state. Now, as far as the um, uh, role of the left, one moment. Yep. Uh, the left in Iran is very small. It consists of um, university students, uh, labor act, some labor activists, including workers themselves, as well as uh, labor support organizations, um, some members of the Writers' Council, as well as intellectual, intellectuals, including Kurdish, Azari, and Arab activists and intellectuals, as well as some feminists. Women who consider themselves socialists uh, have been, or socialist feminists, have been involved in the broader women's struggle, which is much larger. Uh, against the compulsory veil and Sharia law. Um, they uh, also have websites and write for various websites. They've been pro prolific in that respect. One of the important developments in Iran during the past 15 years um, has been, uh, the, uh, as far as the left is concerned, has been the number of translations of works representing anti-authoritarian Marxism and socialism, as well as feminism, including socialist feminism. Uh, I have personally been a co-translator for various books from the Marxist humanist tradition that have had a very good reception and have undergone various reprints in a short while, despite all the limitations of the state. Um, a whole new trans translation of volumes one to three of Marxist Capital has been produced by the Iranian translator Hassan Murtazabi over the course of the past uh, 10 years. Uh, these have all been part of the effort to break with the tradition of Stalinism, Maoism that's been so dominant within the Iranian left. Would you like me to say more about the role of the left or stop now? No, I think you can say more. Um, <clears throat> and I suppose I wanted to, um, you referred to women being involved in the leadership. So when you say the leadership, the leadership of what? Is there some sort of organised group or, um, uh, or are you just referring to the different groups, whether it's trade unions leading strikes or, or, or spontaneous um, uprisings? Um, yeah, perhaps if you could unpack that a little bit as well. Uh, no, in fact, uh, there 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 hasn't been was there certainly hasn't been any organized left leadership within the latest protest, and even uh, in in a larger sense, no, uh, the, the, we haven't been able to single out a particular group that's organizing the latest protest. They've been mostly spontaneous. But when I mentioned when I emphasized the role of women, I mentioned that. Uh, I, I meant to say that uh, within the spontaneous protests, women have had a very strong presence, being uh, involved in um, in a street protest, side uh, by side men, and uh, chanting slogans and challenging the state. But if you'd like me to say more about what the possibilities for the left are, or what the limitations are, I'd be happy to yes, do that. Yes, I think that would be an excellent um, 
question to answer. Yes. Okay. So um, socialists and Marxists have been distinctly absent from any kind of leadership role in the latest protests. Some have been involved in labor solidarity work that preceded the current wave of protests and have encouraged workers to call for an end to the privatization of state enterprises. Uh, but this focus, in my opinion, has been too narrow and misunderstands the nature of the so-called privatization that is going on. The state has used the cover of privatization to transfer capital from the state to the parastatal sector during the past 12 years. And in fact, by doing so, it has concentrated and centralized capital in the hands of the state and its army. Uh, the state has also used this, this uh, for privatization to enable the parastatal enterprises to violate or avoid compliance with the meager labor laws. Uh, so I think that socialists should actually uh, argue that the IRGC and other parastatal institutions that hire labor without any regulations are part of the state and should be subject to its meager labor laws. Uh, another reason, I think, for the absence of socialists from the leadership of the current protest movement is that they have not taken a strong stand against Iran's military intervention in other countries in the region, especially Syria. Some have even supported Bashar Assad as an anti-imperialist or the lesser of the two evils in comparison to ISIS. Some have backed uh, Putin's bombing of Syria. So in my opinion, what's lacking is an anti-authoritarian socialist organization opposed to private and state capitalism, military intervention, patriarchy, ethnic and religious discrimination, while promoting discussion on humanist alternative to capitalism. Um, if I could just follow that up, uh, the Tudor party, which used to be a very large party in Iran, of course it was decimated and um, um, so I understand it's quite small now, but it's still operating. So what role does it play? Does still Because it used to, as far as I understand, have a very Stalinist kind of outlook. Does it still follow that or, or has it evolved much more into, as, as you're describing it, an anti-authoritarian Marxist or socialist organisation? Um, the, the, I'm sorry, would you please repeat the whole question? I missed part of your question. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the Tudor Party, which used to be, you know, one of Iran's big left-wing parties, but a Stalinist party as far as I understand, um, they issued a statement which I thought was quite progressive, but I, I don't know if they've been involved in this movement. And I just wondered uh, whether you think they have evolved to a much more anti-authoritarian socialist Marxist party or if they haven't. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting uh, development. When I read that uh, statement, I was also a bit surprised myself. Um, I, I don't get the sense that the Tudor Party um, has evolved, um, 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 has really transcended uh, Stalinism. And unfortunately, uh, when it comes to Iran's military intervention in Syria, they have not opposed it. Um, but um, I think 
to the extent that they have uh, they still have uh, some followers inside Iran, and they recognize that uh, they uh, the the current movement is does really represent the Iranian working class and is not a uh, foreign conspiracy. Um, they have had to um, face that fact and uh, not try to. Uh, denigrate the movement. Okay. Okay. Um, just finally, um, Frida, I wanted to ask, what has the response of the Kurdish community been um, to this mobilizations? Are they participating in it? Uh, is there any movement at all? The Kurdish community inside Iran or outside? Inside. Iran? The Kurdish community has been very actively involved in the latest protests, especially in the city of Kermanshah, where there was an earthquake uh, prior to the uh, latest wave of protests in November. In early November, there was a major earthquake in um, in the city of Kermanshah. A great deal of damage was done, and uh, the government didn't do much to help. And that created a lot of anger. Um, and of course, uh, in addition to that, there's been a history of oppression of the Kurdish minority in Iran uh, at the, after the 1979 revolution, when, when the Kurds who supported the revolution demanded their own self-determination. They were uh, attacked and killed. There were mass executions of Kurdish uh, freedom fighters. And throughout the years of the past almost 40 years since the revolution, the Kurds have been denied uh, basic benefits. Kurdish areas have been some of the poorest areas in the country. So in addition to um, political political repression, they've also uh, faced uh, economic deprivation. So yes, the Kurds have been very involved in the protests. Another uh, National minority has been that has been very involved in the protest has been the uh, the Arab population. Uh, as far as I know, of the four thousand people who were arrested during the uh, first uh, the, the wave of the protest that began in December, on December twenty eighth, at least a thousand have been arrested in the city of Ahwaz, which is located in the. <coughs> province of Khuzestan, which is in the south and is a mainly Arab, uh, has a mainly Arab population. Um, uh, the Arab population of Iran, in addition to being, um, uh, being repressed as a minority, uh, has also faced tremendous uh, economic problems, also in the form of environmental problems because of the drought and the, uh, and the, um, uh, uh, lack of uh, lack of basic uh, basic means to face the uh, the environmental issues that were caused originally by the Iran Iraq war, but then uh, have been intensified by global warming and uh, and um, and the, the the economic deprivation which has denied them uh, certain benefits um, as a minority.
And you asked if the um, Kurds from outside had an impact on this mobilization. Is there anything they are actually doing from outside um, Iran? Well, there is a very active uh, uh, Kurdish uh, solidarity movement outside. Um, there are uh, there, there are Iranian Kurds in Iraq, for instance, uh, uh, who are directly in touch with the uh, Iranian Kurds, there are uh, Iranian Kurds in, in Europe, and uh, so, yes, they have their websites and uh, uh, meetings, and uh, so, so there definitely is a lot of communication between Kurds inside Iran and, and outside Iran. And of course, uh, 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 to some extent, Kurds in Turkey and Syria but mostly uh, Kurds in Iraq. Frida, um, I'm going to pose a question which you can choose to answer or not to answer. It's the the crystal ball question, which is, (laughs) you know, what is the way forward for for ordinary Iranian people? If, If there's no real leadership, the left is so small and it sounds like it has um, still a way to sort of develop... um, it's an um, it's stance on certain issues such as Syria, and if there's not much of an organisation, if a lot of this has been spontaneous, to me it sort of it doesn't sound very hopeful. Am I being too negative? Uh, no, no. I think it's important to ask the tough questions. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we really need the type of organisation. Uh, and I, when I say the type of organization, I don't mean just one organization. I mean the type of organization that would uh, actively participate, actively uh, uh, participating in labor, feminist, and oppressed minority struggles, and act as a catalyst for regional and international solidarity. Um, without without such an effort, I think the current movement could be open to co-optation, either domestically or internationally. Um, There have been uh, uh, several independent unions inside Iran that have supported the demonstration. The Free Union of Iranian Workers, the Association of Electrical Metal Workers of Kermanshah, which is a Kurdish city, uh, Association of Painters of Al Bors, Tehran Bus Workers Union, the Haftafe Sugarcane Workers that are currently on strike, uh, along with the Labor Defenders Center. Um, and, uh, and there are currently strikes going on, not only in Haftafe, but in uh, other locations in Iran as, as well. Um, so those are positive signs and show that there's no lack of um, spontaneous uh, struggle to, to working class struggle to build on. Um, I think the main issue that is that the movement needs to develop an alternative goal to both private and state capitalism, and it must build strong ties between labor, feminist struggles, and the struggles of oppressed minorities. And all of this is needed to build regional and global solidarity with anti-capitalist struggles that also oppose patriarchy, racism, ethnic, or homophobic prejudice. I also think that that, uh, uh, personally, given that I I, uh, have been involved in translation of of 
works uh, from the Marxist humanist tradition. I think that uh, returning to discussing the works of Marx is really critical for a movement that that wants to build an alternative to capitalism or not. And I don't think that any struggle inside Iran can by itself build an alternative to capitalism. But I think that in order to even establish the connections to other anti-capitalist struggles on the basis of, of even envisioning a humanist alternative to capitalism, we need Marx. <laughs> that sounds a very good uh, point at, at which we can wrap up this interview, unless, Mary, you want to say no, something? No, no, I was just going to say, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that is the now, statement of the year. I may also add that, I, may I just say that I work with the Alliance of, of Middle Eastern Socialists and let yes. people know that they can contact us. Yes, I... Um, I, I, am a, I am a member of the Alliance of Middle Eastern Socialists that was... Uh, recently formed uh, in November. Prior to that, it was the Alliance of Syrian and Iranian Socialists. We're opposed to all the imperialist powers in the region and internationally. We're opposed to, we, uh, uh, we are anti-authoritarian socialists. Uh, we we, we are, uh, oppose patriarchy and uh, defend the uh, right to self-determination of, of uh, national minorities in the region, and, uh, of course, oppose uh, a capitalism, private, and state. Um, we uh, have, uh, since our formation in November, we've been growing quite a bit, and uh, we have members from Iraq and Egypt and Lebanon and Turkey, as well as, of course, Iran and and Syria, and if I miss the country, I apologize. Um, so if you would like to uh, contact us, uh, our email address is info at Alliance of ME Socialists, or you can go to our website, Alliance of ME, ME for Middle East, Socialists with an S at the end, dot O-R-G. And uh, we currently have a campaign in solidarity with Middle Eastern political prisoners that you can endorse, that you can help promote. Uh, if you'd like to learn about our other activities, uh, you, uh, we'd be happy to, um, to respond to you. And uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to uh, respond to your questions. It was our pleasure. Yeah. Yes. Ditto, yes. Thank you so much, um, Frida. That was fantastic. I'm sure we'll have to come back to you as things um, develop a bit more, Frida. I hope you'll be able to um, come back and, and give us an, an update at some point because things may evolve very quickly in Iran it's, the way it's yes. going. Yes, I agree. And I would be delighted to do that. And um, I hope that we can stay in touch because I'd like to learn more about your work and your and your radio station. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Frida. Yes, goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Um, that was um, Frida on the, on the line there, uh, an Iranian um, socialist based in the United States. Um, so... We are probably going to run the activist calendar a bit early today at um, 7.51 because we have a lineup of interviews um, from 8 a.m. Uh, so we, we, I'll play a quick announcement and we'll go straight into the activist calendar. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. 
subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. All right. Um, so it's time for the activist um, calendar. All right, so today um, is Invasion Day, um, so the rally will be happening at right now, today, at 11am um, at the Parliament Steps of Spring Sheet, in Spring Sheet Street, sorry, I don't know why I was saying Sheet for some reason, um, in the city, um, or, and um, yep, yeah, or welcome, and it's um, organised by the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance. In fact, I encourage anyone who's listening right now the rally is where we meant to be and that we should not participate in any Australian Day celebrations. Um, this Sunday, uh, well, actually going on to this Saturday, there will be um, a rally, um, Stand with Afrin um, in the Kurdish community. Um, Turkey is currently in the process of invading Afrin, and so this um, this is an emergency rally called in response to Turkey's aggression. So uh, Afrin, um, just to, to kind of recap, it's in northern Syria. It's not within Turkey's borders, so they're invading into um, traditional Kurdish lands to to crush the, the Kurdish, um, you know, um, independence or... or um, uh, What's that word? Democratic confederalist movement that's that's been happening there. Yep. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he's um, and so they'll um. So that rally will be at eleven a.m. at the state library, um, and will will be happening. Um, yeah, will be happening at eleven a.m. at the state library. So hope to see you there. Um, this Sunday, um, we'll also, there'll be another rally, um, the Pride March at, at 2 p.m. on January the 28th. Um, this is going to be an interesting Pride March because this will be the first Pride March post-marriage equality ritual. Um, so it's actually expected to be quite massive. Um, in fact, there will be uh, an, a ritual march contingent, um, but also um, there will be a, a float called "No Pride in De- No Pride in Detention," um, which I will personally be joining, um, which will be bringing attention to the treatment of queer refugees in offshore detention camps and generally Australia's um, kind of barbaric kind of policy. Um, also happening, just some other things that are happening on Invasion Day. Um, there'll be uh, the Share the Spirit Festival happening at the Treasury Gardens from, I think, 1 to 6 p.m. Um, there'll be the Belgrave Survival Day, which will be happening from 12 noon at the corner of Benson Street and Blair Road in, in Belgrave. Um, and in terms of some other events, um, there will be... A protest, um, get off the fence, um, Bill Shorten, um, that will be happening on f- next Friday um, at 5.30pm at 12 Horse Street, and it's hosted by Stop Adani, Melbourne and Galilea Blockade. And that coincides with the Sustainable Living Festival, which kicks off uh, on Thursday, February 1. Yep, up. and finishes up at February the 28th. And that's usually in that sort of bridge part near Federation Square. I don't know how to describe that. 
um, but it's right next to there. Um, there'll be a Saturday uh, meeting on February the 3rd um, on the Free West Papua campaign. Um, there'll be, it's an update and planning, um, it'll basically be a campaign meeting around the Free West Papua campaign, and they'll feature talks from Senator Richard Di Natale and Councillor Sue Bolton, um, both long-time supporters of the right of the Indigenous people of West Papua to self-determination. Um, so that'll be happening from 6.30 to 9pm at the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, February the 3rd. Um, on Tuesday, February the 6th, there'll be a uh, launch of Ma- uh, Melbourne's Real Transport Vision, um, organised by Friends of the Earth, and they'll be at 8am at the Parliament Steps um, in the city on Tuesday, February the 6th. Uh, there'll be a film screening of Happy End um, from Thursday, um, February the 8th um, at the Cinema Nova, and also Ezekiel Ox will be performing at the Evelyn Hotel from Free Fit. 51 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. All right, I think we've um, exhausted some of those um, announcements. So we actually... Uh, I Just one other announcement. I did give this a plug before, but I'm just keen to emphasise it. At the Australian Centre of the Moving Image, starting today and going to February 6th, is the sort of short documentary-ish thing, We Don't Need a Map, by filmmaker Warwick Thornton. Um, Warwick Thornton's an Aboriginal um, director and screenwriter. Uh, I can't recommend this highly enough. It's a really good film, and there's some really... Uh, Warwick Thornton, the way he sort of describes it is he's challenging his own preconceptions about what what drives um, people with Southern Cross tattoos and, and some of these nationalists, um, and, and it's a really kind of unique and clever way that he approaches the topic and yeah it's 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 a fantastic film can't recommend it highly enough we might just play a quick first two minutes of too black too strong ab ringel before going on to our, our next interview all right um so on the line we have um neil morris um who is part of uh i think a group called dreaming now um, he is uh, an Aboriginal man who is organi- who is part of organising a gig, um, We Survived gig, which is happening Saturday, January the 27th, the day after Invasion Day, which is tomorrow, at 5pm at the Tough in Town in Melbourne. Uh, so, good morning, Neil. Good morning, good morning. Yeah. So, what, um, what can you tell us about um, your gig that's um, coming up? Yeah, I can tell you a, a few things about the gig. So, obviously, it's... It, coming up tomorrow tomorrow night, 27th of January, which, as we are all aware, falls on a day which is a day that's a very controversial day. And to us as Indigenous people, um, generally a day that, that is filled with quite a bit of sense of sadness, um, but also, on the other hand, um, outside of that, a sense of, I suppose, knowing that there's been genocidal practice actively in play in this land, Big colonisation, but you know, reflecting on the fact that we've still remained as a, a race of people is quite a, a powerful thing. And when you really ponder that deeply, it, it's incredibly significant that we, as a people of a very ancient culture, are in fact still here living today, in spite of some pretty intense measures to um, find a whole array of ways to limit our existence essentially in this country that, that we're traditional um, custodians and carers of. So reflecting on that and the fact that we also have a lot of beautiful 
stuff to offer still as, as particularly uh, younger people coming through today embracing our way of connecting in the world in many different ways, particularly through the mediums of music, uh, sharing events like We Survive seems only fitting to reflect uh, upon this day, Survival Day or Invasion Day as we call it, uh, moving forward with the strength and the power that, yes, we have survived and yes, we have a lot of beautiful things to offer the world as Yeah, can you tell us a bit more, um, because that's quite interesting, can you tell us a bit more about the the messages that you kind of want to project um, coming out of this um, concert and gig? Yeah, I guess the the biggest messages are the fact that um, in spite of many attempts to to limit us, you know, we have a very strong resilience as a people. Hmm. Um, We do carry a lot of pain with us, but we also, there's a very natural joy a natural sense of strength that we've had for quite a long time, ever since our elders uh, began uh, protesting and trying to stand up against a lot of the poor treatment, particularly a lot of um, my people, Yorta Yorta, been very active in that space for a very long time and, and been trying to find ways for our people to thrive. So what, what we want people to really come away from this event with is the fact that uh, Indigenous people are you know, trying to find new beautiful ways to shine in this world and, and you know we're doing that through music and doing it through many different genres and and really embracing the fact that you know we've got a lot of strength still to this day that a lot of people can have a chance to connect to and and benefit from as well there's, there's so much richness to our culture and, and we carry that embodied within us as people but you know particularly something special like music which is in our culture ever since the start, that's still there when we share our music. And, and coming to a gig that is a gig that has so many amazing and business performers and sure that everybody that attends, they're going to walk away with, with a really a nice um, warm sense of having really been a part of something special. Um, and certainly I'll say that from a point of, of connecting in these types of spaces previously where it's, it's quite rare. Really, which is a bit of a shame that you can go to an event in this city that is all Indigenous artists. And we do have many amazing Indigenous artists on the act tomorrow. We have eight people on the act, which is um, really special to be able to share. And you have many of those artists want to come and be a part of something like this. You know, testament to how our people do want to share and that there is. There's not a lot of ego at play. Um, you've got people who are just happy to be a part of it and contribute their energy knowing that this is a gig where they're going to be performing alongside um, all other Indigenous artists. So, you know, it's exciting. It's not often it happens. And whenever it does, it's certainly always special. And a lot of very talented people are willing to come forward and, and put their time into something like this without um, having their ego sort of dictate how many expectations of what they get out of it, but rather focusing on what they can give to this particular event and um, what everyone's going to give is mean, unique and beautiful. We have um, a range of different performers. We've got Eric Avery, um, one of the opening acts, who's a violin player and also sings in language, the 
quite interesting to have such diverse sounds. But yet, we're all really close with one another. Everyone who's performing in the city tomorrow night is, you know, like a brother or sister um, to one another, yet having vast differences in our sound and just a testament to the diversity of our people at the same time. There's real common threads between us as a people. I think people are going to see that tomorrow night um, when they come and check this beautiful display of Indigenous art. And um, maybe the last question is, can you tell us about the details of this gig, um, just for listeners? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, the, the gig will be beginning uh, with doors opening at 5pm tomorrow night. It'll be running until approximately 10.30, uh, 10.45, thereabouts. Uh, we have uh, have Brother Philly from Bad Apples who will be um, sort of finishing off the night. with the Kalyani from a, a group by the name of Willow Beats a very special uh, set, which I think that'll be amazing to get down to watch the part of the duo that does um, electronic driven music usually. It's the first time she's done an electric set uh, in the city, so that's going to be special. But Alice Sky doing an electric set as well is an amazing uh, young up-and-coming Indigenous performer. Um, I'll be doing a set as well myself, a beat set. I've just released the track also this week. Um, which I'm really looking forward to performing that tomorrow night. So for those who may or may not have seen the tracks for the name of Australia Does Not Exist, which is currently available on our Spotify Bandcamp and YouTube, if anybody wants to look that up. And, um, yeah, we also have Sister Hannah Donnelly of Soft Tracks who will be spinning some amazing Indigenous music from around the country. Brother Paul Gorley, Gorley spinning, spinning some tracks as well. And Sister Maylene, Slater Burns, who's an amazing, uh, beautiful, soulful singer who's got some really special stuff to offer as well. So yeah, we're really excited to to share a special evening with you and um, certainly it, it won't be the last of this type of event that uh, will be coming through uh, for the people of this city. Yeah, wicked. Um, Baker Boy's been getting a fair bit of airplay on Triple J and uh, rapping in, in language, and you're saying that some of the artists that are, that are playing at this gig tomorrow are also singing in, in language. Um, it seems like that's an emergent um, strand for a lot of upcoming artists, which is really uh, good to see. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Um, across the, the whole land, um, language regeneration has been something that's been quite... Uh, pronounced and significant for at least the last five, um, in many cases, ten years. There's been a lot of investment in communities to really say, hey, you know, if we want our culture to survive, the language is one of the most critical things within that, particularly having younger people speak the language. And um, I've been somebody who's benefited from that mm. and firsthand seen how that can impact on a community and on people from an individual level. And that's been a pretty special thing to witness and be a part of. And and when you see that, you actually realise the excitement around that is, is something quite amazing. And it's enabling younger people to embrace their culture in a way maybe not seen in recent memory. And certainly it, it's only just a matter of time before we do see uh, a lot more art with younger people using language, um, almost solely using Indigenous languages. Um, primarily, and that's, that's certainly been really you know, powerful seeing someone like Baker Boy um, doing that and putting it on a display for people to see. Mm. 
Yeah. Uh, so, more of that. Uh, thank you, um, Neil, um, because um, we've got to cut you off there. Um, it was great having sure. you on the show. We've got, actually just got another interview to go straight to right now. Uh, sure. So that's why we have to... Um, but um, thank you very much um, for being on the show and um, oh, hope to be at your gig tomorrow. I've actually keep... I keep I actually thought your gig was today because I keep thinking today is Saturday, but no, it's actually Friday, which is actually yeah. sat all the all these sort of plans I sort of had in my head. I thought I thought it was actually Saturday night today, but <laughs> it's actually Friday. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll hope to hope to attend your gig tomorrow. Hopefully, see you there. Wicked. Cheers, yeah. Neil. So yeah, yeah cool. Neil Morris there, uh, organizer of uh, We Survived gig that's happening at the Toff in town at two fifty two Swanston Street tomorrow Saturday. It starts off at uh, five pm. So get along and check out some um, excellent local musicians and yeah, see some music uh, talking in, in local languages. It's going to be really good stuff. Okay, so we're going to move on to yeah, I think um. Good morning, Marika. Just testing. Mariki? It's Mariki. Yeah, sorry, sorry about that. Um, just testing um, the, <laughs> to make sure we'll go, because we're just switching to another interview. Okay, so we have um, Marika, um, who Mariki. is... Mariki. <laughs> sorry about that. My pronunciation is not that great. Um, who is a, a, a Gunji Mary um, woman of the Goni Ale tribe and of um, from Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance. Um, so we have her on the line here, and um, I guess maybe the first kind of question I want to ask, considering the day today, is, you know, what can you tell us about, you know, as an Aboriginal person, what January twenty sixth means to you? Oh, as an Aboriginal, what twenty sixth means to me? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I suppose it means it's a collective day of mourning for me, mm. um, and and it's a day of war. It's the day that. The, it's the first day of war declared on um, our people, and and that was subsequent um, and subsequent genocide that can, that followed. Um, I know that still impacts me personally today and in my family and in, in my community and my whole reality. So, um, what it means to me is all of those, it encompasses all of those things and much more. Words can't even describe. Um, what this day historically means to me, really. Mm. And I think it would be good to, um, to talk about, because at the start of the show, we kind of um, kind of had a bit of a chat about some of the political responses to Invasion Day and, you know, January 26th. Um, and there's yep. kind of been a number of kind of political responses. I mean, from the more kind of progressive kind of side of politics, there's kind of like this call to, you know, change the date. Um, and obviously from the more reactionary right-wing side of politics, um, you know, you have this whole thing about Matthew Guy saying that he wants to sack all Victorian councils um, that have basically chosen not to celebrate Australia Day or to not recognise it, and kind of want to hear kind of your responses. Uh, that's to all... disgusting. Yeah. That's dictatorship. I mean, you know, those councils were elected and they made a decision in their elected constituents to to make a political and social decision, and I think to threaten councils to sack them. Um, over um, uh, over something like that, that's something that we should all be concerned about. Mm. And this is why we should remove and abolish all Australia Day and anything that resembles Australian nationalism, because that that is the that goes right to the heart of what Australian nationalism stands for. It, it's everybody else lives outside of it, 
And if you don't fall in and if you don't assimilate, then you're either killed, sacked out. And that's disgusting. Mm. That that embodies the Australia Day that we don't want. And that, you know, and there is that. And then there is, you know, um, people that celebrate that and keep that and and manifest that with their identity, with barbecues and and whatnot and, and, you know, raising flags around. But that is the core of what's dangerous about Australia Day. It's Australian nationalism. And you can't just simply remove that by removing the date. We need to abolish all remnants of Australian nationalism because no one wins mm. in Australian nationalism. Not Aboriginal people, not people of colour, not refugees, and not even Australians. Um, that's just clear dictatorship. Yeah, and I guess now... You know, I kind of want to also, um, you know, talk about, you know, what, what, it, what do you, um, what is like the kind of some of the key kind of demands, you know, from the Aboriginal community? Like, what is this, this whole thing? I'd like to hear a bit, a bit about, you know, in the context of the protests that's, um, happening all around Australia, um, led by the Aboriginal community, you know, what is this demand for, uh, can you tell us in, you know, more detail about, you know, the question of sovereignty and decolonization and, you know, what it would mean, um, for the future of Aboriginal community so, and Australia? Nice. Today's protest is about um, uh, this year. It's the 80 years since the first National Day of Mourning was called, um, and that was 80 years ago. And 80 years ago, that was 150 years of invasion. So, um, and we're calling for Australia Day to be abolished. Mm. Um, there's actually no day that we think, like any given day on, on this continent, there's been a massacre and continued genocide. And until we right those wrongs and address what's happening for, from equally the past, but also currently with black deaths in custody and forced, children, forced um, Aboriginal kids for, forcibly removed from children, um, continued um, displacement um, from our homeland through um, unethical resource extraction companies um, destroying Aboriginal communities and homelands, we're not celebrating anything. We, I don't feel like celebrating. Don't ask me for a day or when, when I feel like celebrating. Stop the genocide of Aboriginal people and um, bring justice for what happened to our people before. 90% of our people were massacred and, um, and wiped off the face of this planet hmm. in the invasion of this country. Don't ask me. Don't ask us. This is not... Our protest today is not about looking for another day to help Australian nationalism continue on where everybody lives outside of it. That's not that's not what today is about. Today is about abolishing that Australia Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zane, do you have a question you'd like to ask? Um, I, I think it's it's hard to um, it's hard to fathom that the, the the full sadness that comes with Australia Day, and it's it's weird this the way that. People simultaneously want to say, "Get over it and move on," whilst at the same time celebrating this historical. It's it's a real sort of it's like almost a schizophrenic disconnect between saying to Aboriginal people, "You're not allowed to feel uh, upset about the the ma- massive long process of of massacres and genocide and dispossession," but at the same time. We're going to celebrate this historic day that the first fleet landed in Sydney. It's it's a it's a it's a weird headspace to to navigate. Yeah, it is. It is really weird, and it's so confusing. And it's just it's 
it is so strange and it is encompassing of really how this country was created. That weirdness and that strangeness is because nobody wants to face the truth and the reality of how this country was formed. And no one wants to really face what's happening with Aboriginal people today. Everyone is happy to continue going on thinking that we are the cause of our own pain and then that helps Australians sleep at night. And if you face what really Australia Day is really about, then um, the reality of Australia is questioned. And nobody wants to face that. And that's why it's odd. It's so strange. But I've never had to live in that reality, that false reality. I was raised knowing the truth from childhood, so telling the truth is not hard for me. It's having other people listen to the truth that's the hardest bit. Every Aboriginal kid in this country was raised knowing it's the white fellows that are struggling to come on board. But having said that, we can see that this protest on Invasion Day has grown. Mm. Um, first, um, you know, we reignited the fire in 2015 and we had 5,000 people come out. And then 20,000 people came out last year and we're expecting more. So it's just really telling that a lot, most Australians don't agree with the lie that, that the Australian government still continues to perpetuate mm. and that they want to stand on the right side of history. And that's comforting um, to know that we're not alone. We see the Jewish community coming out. We've seen the Muslim community every day. Um, average people um, are, are changing their views. We've seen a lot of uh, businesses. Um, we've seen you know, Kent Street down in Fitzroy, um, the Trades Hall. There are a lot of organisations and everyday people that live on this continent that don't want to be a part of that lie anymore. And so people are waking up. I think it's, yeah, it's quite encouraging, especially yesterday, you know, promoting the Invasion Day rally. It was quite evident that definitely feels like it's less of a controversial topic than it was um, several years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, the only people that we got backlash for were kind of like the typical kind of older kind of white males. Um, but there was yep. lots of diversity in the people that were coming to support us, lots of young people. Um yep. That um that was supporting the Invasion Day protest and and then there's this funny story that I told um spoke on the radio about earlier about um there was this family and basically these sh- the children started taking the leaflets of the Invasion Day and then the father said no 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 don't take those it's it we don't support that point of view <laughs> and then I told him yeah, well right. well your your children are eventually get a sink for themselves you know <laughs> yeah that's true um but I. But I think, yeah, it's how I kind of see Australia Day is it's basically participating in this kind of collective kind of forgetfulness or it's basically delusion about what actually yeah. our true history is. Um, yeah. And in fact, but the fact that, you know, um, we are, these protests uh, and this, and the movement is actually having, I think the positive thing is it's having an impact. Um, and I think it's quite evident in the fact that Matthew Guy, the scum he is, is resorting to things like threatening to... Dic- being a fucking dictator. Yes. And there's also these... And there's also these discussions about... I mean, in fact, I'd like to hear your opinion on this, on this because it's quite interesting uh, how they want to change curriculum to, you know, reflect 
more national pride and less emphasis on, you know, teaching about Aboriginal history. Of course, the funny, the irony is, you know, Aboriginal history is never really taught properly in um, schools to begin with. No. Um, and and Aboriginal history is Australian history. It's mm. different. It's that if you, and that's embarrassing. What kind of service are we doing to children if we're just going to tell them half the truth? That sets people up to be incredibly fucked up. And that we're going to be run by a bunch of idiots that are incredibly fucked up still. We need to honestly know the truth of this country. Sorry, I'm, so, I'm sorry for swearing. But, um, mm. yeah. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. I okay. think it's a day that uh, rightfully brings up, um, you know, passionate emotions. Uh, I've, I've been given this a plug. Have you seen that film, We Don't Need a Map, by Warwick Thornton? No, I haven't. Oh, it's, they're showing it at Acme at Fed Square. One of the things that, that Warwick really kind of puts across in this film is that it's a really kind of hollow nationalism that a lot of your flag-waving idiots try and put forward. And meanwhile, mm. the actual unique history of this land, no one seems to... If they want to say, oh, what makes Australia unique? None of these people waving Union Jacks around tend to say, oh, well, maybe the 60, 80, 100,000 years of Aboriginal history, that's something that's pretty unique to this. Or how about Aboriginal people were the first bakers? Or how about we did have towns and villages? Yeah. Or how about first astronomers? Or yeah. first remnants of buri- um, ceremonial burials? Right. Mm. That's not a national pride here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could go on about that, but mm. yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, we're running a bit um, late now, so we only have a few minutes left. I guess I want to hear kind of any final comments that you or a message that you would like to kind of give to everyone who's you know attending the Invasion Day rallies um, today, or especially yeah. in Melbourne. Um, although I imagine that there are listeners outside Melbourne who are listening right now. Yeah. Sure. I would say that today we, uh, as always, our protests have always been um, non-violent and peaceful. So I encourage people not to respond and react to the antagonisers, the counter rally, but also um, I want people to, I'd ask people to um, look deeper than change the date. Change the date is, for me and for many other Aboriginal people, merely a tokenistic gesture that doesn't look deeply at changing things like the ongoing, continued genocide that Aboriginal people experience. Um, and other than that, look after each other. Um, and we need to stick together. We are growing. We are not no longer the silent minority. We're growing in numbers. Um, and have that awkward conversation with that racist family member to try and turn them around and encourage you to, you know, try and get them on side for next year. Mm. Yep. Here, here. All right. All right. Well, um, yeah, thanks for all the excellent work that you're doing with uh, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, Murky. It's, it's really exciting to see. Um, such oh, staunch on. activism from the local community. Thank you. Thanks for all your support over the years, 3CR, and um, we'll see you guys there today. Yeah. Right. Word. Word. Right. Bye. Bye. See you there. Mariki Onus from Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. And, yeah, that's the, the kind of lead group organising the Invasion Day rally today. It's uh, 11... 11 a.m. at the uh, state and parliament steps. So, yeah, get along. Heaps of groups supporting it.